Good morning. I want to thank Cornerstone family for inviting me to worship with you today. This really is home away from home. I enjoy coming. I love coming here. Uh, I think I've used this introduction for the past five years. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dave, and I am Pastor Andrew's best friend. Um, I was so encouraged and glad to hear that Cornerstone was able to bless Pastor Andrew with sabbatical. Um, he doesn't get a sabbatical from me. We still talk every day. Uh, I talked to him yesterday, talked to him today, probably grab lunch after. And in case you're wondering, he and Eunice are, are, well, seem to be doing very well. Uh, I know traditionally um, the month of March here at Cornerstone is reserved for uh, focusing on two of Cornerstone's core values, global missions and mercy and justice as our Elder Rock prayed. And so I wanted to keep that tradition alive by preaching on a text that focuses on missions. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to God's word today in Acts 8. We will be reading from verses 1 through 8 and then skip down to verse 26 and read to the end of the chapter. Acts 8, 1 to 8, then 26 to 40. If you could rise as we honor God in the reading his word. This is God's word, his holy inerrant word to us this morning. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer, silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. 
And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for inviting us to your house, into your presence this morning. Lord, would you meet us where we are, encourage us, lift our heads, remind us that we are in our Father's house, the good, faithful Father. Will you nourish us to the preaching, hearing of your word so that we may joyfully respond in obedience that we may, with our lives, magnify and exalt and glorify Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As it was mentioned in the intro, or my intro, um, I went from being a pastor to a programmer, so just taking a break from ministry. It's my first time in the corporate world, corporate life, and I've been adjusting. Uh, one of the things that was new to me was these things called sprints. Our team gets together every Friday and we plan out the next two weeks. What are the new features we need to implement? What can we do better to make our app run smoother? What are the design changes that we need to make? What are nice to have, but not necessarily needed for this next release? And you know, for the most part, these planning meetings are pretty predictable. They're vanilla. Uh, the workload is pretty routine, but once in a while, we'll have someone from the board, someone from the higher up, join in on these meetings with this all hands on deck type of situation. Drop whatever you're working on because we have to fix this high priority bug. Drop whatever you're working on because this new feature is top priority. Whatever was on the to-do list for those two weeks, it all gets bumped down because of this new item. And I share that intro with you because I wanna ask you this. How high of a priority should sharing the gospel be? When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you told someone the good news about Jesus Christ? When was the last time it was on your mind? Now, I propose these questions because today's text should challenge us in a way where sharing the gospel is not merely something that is on our to-do list. But if we really understand the gospel, then it reorients our lives in a way where we we're compelled, we're driven to share the gospel. And so the gospel truth for us today is very simple. God calls his people to share the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. God calls his people to share the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I have three points for us. Um, I don't really like alliterations. This happens to be an alliteration. The advance of the gospel, the appeal of the gospel, and then the application. The advance, the appeal, and the application. Let's look at the first point, the advance of the gospel. Something very noteworthy is taking place in chapter eight. There's a very pivotal strategic shift that's taking place in today's text. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but I just wanna backtrack with you to see why this is such a significant monumental moment you see, from Acts 1 to 7, we have this evangelism explosion in Jerusalem. But as the church in Jerusalem is growing rapidly and tremendously, 
it's not met without opposition. In Acts 4, the apostles Peter and John were imprisoned. In Acts 7, the beloved Stephen is martyred. But you see, the church of Christ is no stranger to persecutions. When you survey the scriptures, you often see the people of God enduring intense persecution. But it's never without purpose. Behind every persecution, there is a sovereign God who's up to something greater. As John Piper once said, the Great Commission will not be finished without the suffering of God's people. This will happen not just because from time to time persecution arises, but because it is the design of God that the gospel will be spread by the means of suffering. We see persecution in today's text. Literally coming off the heels of Stephen's martyrdom, we read that Saul is wreaking havoc on the church in Jerusalem. Saul, as we see him here, is actively looking to tear the church apart. But here's why this particular persecution is, is so pivotal. You see, this persecution resulted in the scattering of God's people. But I want you to look closely at where they scattered. This is what we read at the end of verse one. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do those names sound familiar? Those cities sound familiar. In the beginning of Acts, Acts 1-8, right before Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, these are literally his last words to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Out of all the possible things that Jesus could have said to his disciples, this is what he leaves the apostles with. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, the ends of the earth. Well, where has the church scattered? Judea and Samaria. Why did they go there? Verse four and five. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. On the one hand, this is expected. This was expected. Christ said it will happen and it does happen. They've been scattered to Samaria and they're preaching the gospel. But I want you to grasp why this is so significant. Why the gospel going to Samaria is unimaginable. It's actually unthinkable. Let me briefly explain why there's such hostility between Jerusalem and Samaria. I'm just going to give you the Spark Notes version really quick. When uh, the kingdom of Israel uh, split after the death of Solomon, the Jews in the north in Samaria, they intermingled with foreigners. They married uh, Assyrians and they became known as Samaritans. And so the Jews in the south referred to the Samaritans as dogs, half-breeds, unpure, unclean. And so you see the hostility between the Jews and Samaritans grew that by the time Jesus came onto the scene, we're told that Jews avoided all contact with Samaritans. Think about the well-known story in John 4, the woman at the well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? This Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There is great animosity, hostility between these two groups. 
if I could share this analogy, and this by no means is a perfect analogy, and my apologies if you don't follow sports. I, as a New York Giants fan, despise the Philadelphia Eagles. Yes, I know I am in Eagles territory, and I probably won't be invited again. My condolences to what happened a couple of weeks ago. Too soon, it's still hurt. But can you imagine you as an Eagles fan driving onto 276 East, hopping onto I-95 North, crossing over to Dirty Jersey, and mingling, associating with Giants fans? No, a thousand times no. But don't just stop there. Don't just stop in Jersey. Don't just stop in Samaria. Go to Washington. Go even to the Gentiles, the Cowboys. <laughs> in a similar way, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And yet, here we read that the gospel has advanced into Samaria. Can you imagine eagles and giants getting along? The gospel, which has started with Jews in Jerusalem, has now started to make its way to the Samaritans, the enemy territory, to the half-breeds, to the dogs. But the gospel is not going to stop there. The gospel will go to the Gentiles as well. You see, what we're seeing is not just a geographical expansion of God's kingdom. But it's a multicultural, multi-ethnic inclusion in God's kingdom. What we're coming to see to fruition is God's plan that he made before the foundation of the world to include in his family a people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You see, this persecution was supposed to slow down the gospel, but it only what served to advance the gospel. The gospel that was being attacked is actually now on the attack. You know, when my wife and I started dating, instead of doing no normal couple activities like going to the movies or eating at restaurants. For some reason, we played a lot of checkers. Uh, not chess, I don't know how to play chess, but checkers. And I'm sure you've all played checkers. Simple board game, red and black pieces. You try to conquer all of your opponent's pieces. One of the most satisfying moves that you can pull off is when you set up a piece for your opponent to purposely jump you. You let them take your piece, why? So you double jump them back, right? Classic move, classic checkers move. You lose a piece, but only so you could gain two of theirs. Your loss is actually going to end up in gain. And I bring that up because here's Saul's attempt to take down the church. He's trying to get rid of all of his opponents, but not only does God advance his gospel, he looks at Saul and says, king me. You see, Paul attacking the church only served to open the doors for the gospel to really take off. Here's God saying, watch how the gospel is going to advance now. The gospel is not bound to one people group. You have seen nothing yet. Now it'll go to the ends of the earth. And I want us to reflect on this. No amount of persecution is ever going to hinder the advance of the gospel. The gospel is going to go where it needs to go because of the one who's advancing the gospel. And friends, I just want to encourage you here with this thought. God, who was committed to the advancement of the gospel in Acts 8, despite all the opposition, is still the same God who is committed to advancing the gospel despite and through any opposition we'll ever face today.
And that should all the more encourage us to center our lives around the relentless advance of the gospel. Christopher Wright, who wrote a book on missions, had this to say about the matter. It is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. Christ does not work to fulfill our private agenda, but to make us an active part of his grand redemptive activity. The king has spoken. It is ours to listen and obey in anticipation of his coming to the praise of his glory. If that's true, then the advancing of the gospel can't be merely one of the items on our agenda, nor is it simply on the top of our priority list. I would contend that the advancing of the gospel is what should shape every other agenda. The advancing of the gospel is what should determine what makes it on the list of agendas. And so let me ask at this point, are we here at Cornerstone on board with, with what Christ is up to? In your pursuit of conformity to Christ, do you find yourself aligned with God's mission? And if I'm honest with you guys, it's not. At least for me, it's not. And here's how I know it's often not at the forefront of what I do. Whenever I get an email invitation to a missions conference, the skeptical side of me immediately thinks, is this going to be a waste of my time? Will there be anything new that I haven't heard already? Or whenever I hear about other churches having mission conferences, I think, you know, that's good for them, but I've heard it all. You see, the fact that I think in this way exposed how little I understood about the centrality of the missions in the church. Shouldn't we as God's children want to know what our Father is doing in other parts of the world? Shouldn't we as God's children be zealous, be eager to join in His work? There should be a natural desire to be involved in missions. That we wouldn't just be a people who do missions for God, but we see ourselves as children of God who have this immense privilege in being incorporated and involved in the work of our Father. I think one question we could be asking is this, has my growth in spiritual depth made me more or less concerned for the lost? Now I wanna challenge us to start thinking outside ourselves. We should be thinking of ways of giving more of sending more, praying more about missions, because that's what Christ is doing now. He's building up his church to the advance of the gospel. You know, that's what the book of Acts is really all about, the advancing of the gospel. And starting in chapter eight, it really takes off. We're gonna see conversion after conversion. We're gonna see the church grow and expand, especially after the conversion of Saul. But before Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, the text puts a spotlight on another candidate of the gospel we're introduced to this Ethiopian eunuch. And it's in this interaction between Philip and the eunuch, it's where we not only see the advance of the gospel, but we see the beauty, the appeal of the gospel. And so let's look at our second point, the appeal of the gospel. There's so much going on in this story that it's hard for us to appreciate the nuanced details at first glance. 
And what really stood out to me was how the sequence of events was so bizarre. And yet at the same time, just really amazing on so many levels. Starting with Philip being called out to Samaria to go to this random place. You know, uh, Philip was having one of the greatest revivals, right? He was healing people. People with unclean spirits were coming out. And in the middle of this great revival, an angel of the Lord prompts Philip to go to this remote desert area. And the person he is told to meet is an Ethiopian. Well, who is this guy? Who is this person? Who is this random person that Philip has to meet? He's a eunuch. What do we know about eunuchs? They are castrated males. As one commentator pointed out, eunuchs in the Bible were typically castrated before puberty, sometimes with their consent, but usually not. And the reason he was emasculated is because kings felt as though they could trust such men in, com in um, uh, close proximity to their female family members, especially the queen, right? This guy is not just any eunuch. He's serving as the queen's financial advisor. This eunuch is serving in a very prestigious role. Not only is he serving in a high position, he's done pretty well for himself. Did you notice that he's riding on a chariot? That might not mean much to us, but one commentator pointed out, the lowly walked, the middle class rode on donkeys, the leaders rode on horses, but only the wealthy rode on chariots. Here's where it gets interesting. This Ethiopian eunuch is returning from the place where Philip fled from. He's returning from Jerusalem. Here's where it gets even more interesting. We read in verse 27 that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. We don't know all the details, but clearly this eunuch is a person of faith. But here's the thing. It's hard for me to imagine that this trip to Jerusalem was a pleasant trip. It's hard for me to imagine that this eunuch experienced joy in Jerusalem. Here's why. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this eunuch for a minute. You've arrived at this temple, the temple in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of activity going on in the courtyards. And as you get there, you notice the men and young men are to one side and the women and children are to the other side. And what you also notice is an area designated for foreigners and for Gentiles. And reading that sign, you're naturally inclined to go there. You are a foreigner and a Gentile, but you hesitate because the word of God says in Deuteronomy 23, no one whose male organ is crushed shall enter the assembly of God. As if you don't stand out already as a foreigner, as an Ethiopian, how much more out of place would you feel as a eunuch? You're different. But not only that, you could not bear the mark of the covenant. You can't be circumcised. You are someone who is disqualified altogether to enter the house of God. And so you've made this six months journey to Jerusalem for what? You can't enter. You're ashamed, you're out of place, you're distraught. And now you have to go on the road again for another six months back to Ethiopia. You're probably leaving with more questions, with more doubt than when you had arrived. 
you've essentially wasted a year of your life making this trek. But before you start your trek back home, you stop by a temple stall and you purchase a passage of scripture. And as you embark on this long journey home, you pull out the scroll and you read, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. You read about a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and you're curious about who this person is. And as you're riding your chariot at that very moment, as you're reading Isaiah, you look over and you see this random person running next to you. You know, I play this scenario countless times in my head. And every time two, two thoughts came to mind, this is so bizarre. What is Philip doing there? But at the same time, I couldn't help but think the timing of it was so amazing. Not only was Philip able to run and meet the eunuch on this deserted road, but think about the encouragement this eunuch needed considering what he had just experienced in Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We're not given too much detail other than the fact that Philip began with Isaiah 53. And I imagine he didn't just stop at Isaiah 53. I like to think that the conversation went something like this. Here's the Ethiopian, uh, Ethiopian eunuch speaking. Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? To which Philip replied, the prophet is talking about the son of God who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. To which he replied, but I'm not worthy. I've done things in the past, unspeakable things. How could I become, how could I come before God in my condition? To which Philip replies, let's continue reading. Let's see what else it says in the word of God. A couple of chapters later, they come to Isaiah 55. And the eunuch reads this verse, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and eat. Friend, you see the word of God says, come as you are. And at this point, you say, I can't come as I am. I'm not just any sinner. I'm disqualified sinner. I'm a eunuch. You're distraught, full of shame. To which Philip says, let's just read one more passage. Turn the page to Isaiah 56. And this is what he reads. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Oh, how the word of God must have gripped the eunuch at this point. What a timely message. What a timely savior. How encouraged the eunuch must have felt. How the burden of guilt and shame must have lifted right off. His whole life, He's lived under the rule and reign of a king who's told him, if you want to secure a position in this court, sacrifice yourself. But now, he hears about a different kind of king who tells him, you'll always have a place in my court because I have sacrificed myself. 
His whole life, he's had to carry the weight of the shame, enduring much humiliation and brokenness. But now he hears about a king who on the cross was despised and rejected so that he could be made whole. His whole life, he's lived as an outcast, an outsider, never fitting in, never belonging, never having a place to call home. But now he hears about a king who on the cross was abandoned all alone so that this eunuch might always have a place in the house of God. Oh, what joy must have filled his heart. And then to have been baptized, the sign and seal of the new covenant, he is engaged to the Lord. Is it any surprise that this Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing? What other king can give you that kind of joy? What other king can give you that kind of liberation, that hope? What other king can give you that kind of worth? You see, what makes the gospel so appealing is the king himself. What makes the gospel so attractive is the person and work of Jesus Christ. John Piper writes, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. You see, the beauty of the gospel is in the beauty of the Savior. Friends, will you rejoice today in the fact that the king who revealed himself to this Ethiopian eunuch is the same king who reveals himself to us today? And I pray that the more and more we reflect on the gospel, we would find him more worthy, not less. We would find him more beautiful, not less. We would give him more glory, not less. That we would give more of ourselves, not less. If I could just close the sermon with three quick points of application. First, if we really believe that the ultimate joy comes from the gospel. If we believe that what people need most is to behold the beauty of our savior, then we need to start thinking of ways to advance the gospel. And thinking about advancing the gospel is not just a job for the elders. It's not something that's relegated to a few mission-minded members or the missions committee. I want you to notice who's doing the evangelism in today's text. It's not the apostles. The apostles, as we read, stayed back in Jerusalem. It's the non-apostles. According to verses 1 and 4, it's the people who have just been emotionally crushed. Think of the emotional state of the people. They have just seen their beloved deacon Stephen martyred. They've been harassed, driven out of town, deprived of possessions. They're now refugees. They're scattered, probably separated from one another. And you would think they would be so afflicted that they will be scared into silence. Look what they did. They continued to preach the word. Didn't they have to worry about lodging? Didn't they have to worry about reclaiming their possessions, about finding work, keeping their head down and staying on the run? One step ahead of Saul? Church, we're always gonna have excuses of why we can't share our faith. But if we really believe that the advancing of the gospel, the building up of the church of Christ, is the most important thing we could do today then we need to start thinking outside of ourselves. How can I reorient my life? How can I position myself so that I'm thinking more about Jesus? Second, 
Will you ask the Holy Spirit to guide you? Now, the Spirit may not be telling you to go to some desert, some remote area, but will you ask him to put someone on your radar? Coworker, friend, family member, a neighbor. Lean on the Spirit and ask him, who can I share my faith with today? What relationship do you want me to pursue so that I can show them the beauty of Christ? Is there a mission trip that I can partake in? Lord, do you want me to use my PTOs for this trip? Lastly, I think a number one excuse for why we don't share is that we're worried that we might botch things up. I didn't go to seminary. I don't know. What if the guy that I'm talking to is smarter than I am? Can I just remind you that the spirit who empowers our witness is the same spirit who works in the one that we're going to witness to. That ultimately the power of the transforming work of the gospel doesn't reside in the eloquence of a presentation, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that we would ask the Spirit of God to kindle deep conviction in our lives, but also in the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are our Savior, our beautiful, wonderful, glorious Savior. You told us to come as we are, all our shame, all our guilt, and you place it on the cross, nailing it to yourself so that we could come, not as servants, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. Oh, what great joy it is, Lord, to know you. Continue to fill us with that truth every waking morning that we are yours, that we belong to you. And Lord, as we think about our lives, help us to not live for ourselves. May we reorient our lives in a way where we're thinking about your kingdom, thinking about kingdom causes, that the gospel, sharing the gospel is not just something to do on our to-do list, but it affects the way we do everything, the way we interact with our friends, the way we parent, the way we work, the way we live. And so, Lord, thank you for giving us this life and thank you for revealing yourself to us. And may we live to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.